Okay, I think what I would like to do, Susie always has an expression about something like this, which is that it's going to be a bit like jazz. This is going to be incredibly um, jazzy, I hope, because um, I would like to try and facilitate, really, a discussion and to um, try and think about what it means to not be terrified of what you hear. I think that means something very, very specifically for a therapist, about not, about not being terrified of what you hear from another, but also what it means when this voice from outside of yourself about not being terrified and about perhaps being curious about what this voice has to say and why this voice is speaking to you and how to have respect for that voice um, and how to make meaning. And so I was wondering if we could begin with you, Eleanor. Um, I've been very fortunate to see your TED Talk, um, which um, I think was incredibly inspiring. It's had, I think, over a million views now. So I wonder if you could begin by telling us what you understand about not being terrified of what you hear. Um, Gladly. I'm going to stand up, actually, if that's okay, just so I can see you all. Um, Thank you so much, everyone, for turning out tonight. It's fantastic to see such a large audience um, and yeah I guess to, to set the scene really for what's going to be an evening of talking about an incredibly striking and incredibly singular human experience which is hearing voices that no one else can hear. Um, obviously this carries very varied quite dramatic connotations um, but approached in sort of with an open heart and an open mind this is an incredibly fascinating human experience. It speaks to the nuances of perception, it speaks to the nature of self, and this is an experience that has been discussed and documented and debated for over 2,000 years of human history. And over the years, as many of you I'm sure will know, voice hearing has been feared, it's been reviled, it's been celebrated, it's been consecrated, it's been forensically scrutinised across a whole range of diverse specialities, including psychiatry, psychology, neurology, cultural studies, theology, philosophy. Um, But it certainly holds a very particular fascination for me, because for nearly half my life, I've heard voices myself. And over the years, these voices have changed, they've multiplied, they've terrorised, they've inspired, and they've encouraged. And today, they are absolutely an intrinsic and valuable part of my identity. But there's also, without a doubt, a very prolonged time when their presence drove me to absolute delirious extremes of misery, of desperation and despair. And some of what I'm going to be talking to you about um, is the evolution of that understanding and the remarkable privileges and the terrible penalties that it entailed. Um, But what we'll certainly also be doing is uh, shifting across the evening from the individual to the collective and from the personal to the political and really, I hope, emphasising how the right to live a peaceful, happy, rewarding future, irrespective of a painful present or a harrowing past should be absolutely seen as a fundamental right of every single person who hears voices. But to set the scene, I'm going to tell you a short story about a voice and a voice hearer. 
And this is a story that starts with me leaving home for the very first time to go to university. And this was an incredibly bright day. It was brimming with hope and optimism. I was someone who'd done extremely well at school. Expectations for me, correspondingly, were extremely high. Um, and certainly to begin with, I very, very gleefully entered the student life of lectures and parties and traffic cone stealing, which is basically what we did as an undergraduate in the 90s. It was great. Um, but of course, as we know, without a doubt, appearances can be incredibly deceptive. And to an extent, this very feisty, this very happy, this very energetic persona of lecture-going and traffic cone stealing was without a doubt a veneer, albeit an incredibly well-crafted and convincing one. Underneath, I was, in fact, desperately unhappy, insecure, and fundamentally frightened. Frightened of other people, of the future, of failure, of this terrible emptiness that I fundamentally felt was within me. But I was also incredibly skilled at hiding it. And from the outside, certainly appeared to be someone with everything to hope for and aspire to. And this fantasy of invulnerability was so complete that I even deceived myself. And as the first semester ended and the second begun, there was absolutely no way that anyone could have predicted what was just about to happen. Now, it was during my second term that it was started. I was leaving a seminar, humming to myself, fumbling with my handbag, just as I'd done a hundred times before, when suddenly I heard a voice very calmly observe, she is leaving the building. And I looked around and there was no one there, but the clarity and decisiveness of the comment was absolutely unmistakable. Shaken, I left my books on the stairs, hurried home, and there it was again. She is opening the door. So this was absolutely the beginning. The voice had arrived. And the voice persisted. So it was days and then weeks of it, on and on, narrating everything I was doing in the third person. She is going to a lecture. She is going to a library. <coughs> it was neutral and passive, and even after a while, it was become strangely companionate and reassuring. Although I did notice that its calm experience sometimes slipped, and it would occasionally mirror my own unexpressed emotions. <coughs> For example, this is Jeanette that you oh. are hearing, giving you <laughs> an opportunity yeah, of hearing a voice. Phantom coffee, that's a new one. <laughs> <laughs> I think the evening's peaks now, it's all down here. So me. now we can all go home. <laughs> <laughs> okay, come on, get serious. Thanks, <laughs> Okay, um, <laughs> sorry, I've got the <laughs> <laughs> It's all very serious. Former <laughs> Okay, um, so I did sometimes realise that this voice's calm exterior would absolutely slip and that it would occasionally mirror my own unexpressed emotions. So, say for example, if I was angry and I had to hide it, then the voice would sound frustrated. And this is something I often had to do, being incredibly adept at concealing how I really felt. Um, those hidden, uh, unspoken emotions would be manifested through the voice. Um, but other than that, it was neither sinister nor disturbing, although it was also clearly apparent, even at this point, that the voice had something to communicate to me about my emotions, particularly emotions which were remote and inaccessible. Now, it was around that point that I made an absolutely fundamental mistake and that I told a friend about the voice, and she was 
horrified. Very subtle conditioning process had begun. The implication that normal people don't hear voices. And the fact that I did implied that something was very seriously wrong. Now, this kind of fear and mistrust is absolutely infectious. Suddenly, the voice didn't seem quite so benign anymore. Um, And when she insisted that I seek medical help, I duly complied, and which proved to be mistake number two. I spent some time telling the college GP when I went to see him about what I perceived to be the real problem. Things like anxiety, low self-worth, fears about the future, and was met with bored indifference until I mentioned the voice. At which point he dropped his pen, swung around, and began to question me with a show of real interest. And to be fair... I was absolutely desperate for interest and help. And I began to tell him about this strange commentator. I absolutely wish at this point the voice had said she is digging her own grave. Because I was promptly referred to a psychiatrist who likewise took an extremely grim view of the voice's presence, subsequently interpreting everything I said through a lens of latent insanity. So, for example, I was part of a student TV station that broadcast news bulletins around the campus. And during an appointment, which was running very late, said, I'm sorry, doctor, I've got to go. I'm reading the news at six. Now, I ended up in my medical records. Elna has delusions that she's a television news broadcaster. Um, <sighs> now, it was absolutely at this point that events began to very, very rapidly overtake me. A hospital admission followed, the first of many. A diagnosis of schizophrenia came next, later changed to paranoid schizophrenia. And possibly, worst of all, a toxic, tormenting sense of hopelessness, humiliation and despair about myself and my prospects. But having been encouraged to see the voice not as an experience, but as a symptom, my fear and resistance towards it absolutely intensified. Um, And effectively, this represented taking an aggressive stance towards my own mind, a kind of psychic civil war. And in turn, this caused the number of voices to increase and grow progressively hostile and menacing. Helplessly and hopelessly, I began to retreat into this nightmarish inner world in which the voices were destined to become not only my persecutors, but also my only perceived companions. They tell me, for example, that if I could prove myself worthy of their help, then they could change my life back to how it had been. And a series of increasingly bizarre tasks were set. It was almost kind of like a labor of Hercules. So these tasks started off quite small. Um, So, for example, pull out three strands of hair, um, but gradually grew more extreme, culminating in commands to harm myself and a particularly dramatic instruction. You see that lecturer over there, Elna? You see the glass of water on his desk? We have to pour it over him in front of all the other students, which I actually did, which I'm kind of a bit proud of, um, but which, needless to say, did not endear me to the lecturer or the other students or pretty much anyone. Um, because, in effect, what was happening is a very, very vicious cycle of fear, avoidance and mistrust was become established between myself and my voices. And this was a battle in which I felt utterly powerless and incapable of establishing any kind of peace or reconciliation. Two years later, and the deterioration was dramatic. By now, I had the whole frenzied repertoire. Terrifying voices, grotesque visions, bizarre, intractable delusions. My mental health status had become a catalyst for discrimination, verbal abuse, and physical and sexual assault. And I've been told by one psychiatrist, Eleanor, you'd be better off with cancer because cancer is easier to cure than schizophrenia. I've been diagnosed, drugs, and discarded. And at this point, was so demoralized by the voices that I attempted to drill a hole in my head in order to get them out. 
Now, looking back on the absolute wreckage and despair of those years, it really does seem to me now as if someone died in that place. And yet, without a doubt, someone else was saved. A very broken, haunted person began that journey. But the person who emerged was a survivor and would ultimately grow into the person I was destined to be. Many people have harmed me in my life, and I absolutely remember them all. But the memories grow pale and faint in comparison to the people who helped me. The fellow survivors, the fellow voice hearers, the comrades and collaborators. The mother who never gave up on me, who believed that one day I would come back to her and was willing to wait for me for as long as it took. The doctor, who only worked with me for a brief period, but who reiterated his belief that recovery was not only possible, but inevitable. And during a period of devastating relapse, told my terrified family, please don't give up hope. I believe that Eleanor can get through this. Sometimes, you know, it snows as late as May, but summer always comes eventually. This talk is absolutely not enough time to fully credit all those good and generous people who fought with me and for me and who waited to welcome me back from that agonised, lonely place. But together, they formed a blend of courage, creativity, integrity and an unshakable belief that my shattered self could become healed and whole. I used to say that these people saved me, but what I now know is they actually did something even more important in that they empowered me to save myself. And crucially, they helped me to understand something that I'd always suspected, that the voices I was hearing were a meaningful response to traumatic life events, particularly childhood events, and as such were not my enemies, but a source of insight into solvable emotional problems. Now, at first, undoubtedly, this was incredibly difficult to believe, not least because the voices were so hostile and aggressive. And in this respect, a crucial first step was learning to separate out a metaphorical meaning from what I previously interpreted to be a literal truth. So, for example, voices which threatened to attack my home, I learned to interpret as my own sense of fear and insecurity in the world rather than an actual objective danger. Now, at first, I would have believed them. So I remember, for example, sitting up one night on guard outside my parents' room to protect them. For at that time, I believed the genuine threat from the voices. And because I had such bad problems with self-injury, most of the cutlery in the house had been hidden. So I ended up arming myself with this like little plastic fork, like picnic wear, um, and literally sat up, clutch, just clutching this fork all night, sort of feeling fully prepared to spring into action should anything happen. Um, and actually sort of saying it out loud several times during the night, it's like, do not mess with me, I've got a plastic fork. Don't you know? Um, now, later, a far more strategic response to dispense with the plastic fork, which it paid me to do, so I love that fork, um, and instead try to deconstruct the message behind the words. So when the voices uh, warned me not to leave the house, then I would thank them for drawing my attention to how unsafe I felt because I was aware of it and I could do something positive about it. Then go on to reassure both the voices and myself that we were safe and didn't need to feel frightened anymore. I would set boundaries for the voices and try to interact with them in a way that was assertive yet respectful, establishing a slow process of communication and collaboration in which we could learn to work together and support one another. And throughout this process, what I would ultimately realise was that each voice was closely related to aspects of myself, and that each of them carried overwhelming emotions that I'd never had an opportunity to process or resolve. Memories of sexual trauma and abuse, of anger, shame, loss, guilt, and low self-worth. The voices took the place of this pain and gave words to it. 
And possibly one of the greatest revelations was when I realized that the most hostile, aggressive voices actually represented the parts of me that had been hurt the most profoundly. And as such, it was these voices that needed to be shown the greatest compassion and care. Now, it was armed with this knowledge that I would ultimately gather together my shattered self, each fragment represented by a different voice, gradually withdraw from all my medication and return to psychiatry, only this time from the other side. Ten years after the voices first came, I finally graduated, this time with the highest degree in psychology that the university had ever given, one year later at the highest master's, and four years after that with a highly commended PhD. So it says I'm bad for a mad person. Um, and in fact, one of the voices actually dictated the answers during an exam, which technically possibly counts as cheating. Um, but, uh, I worked in mental health services. I published book chapters and academic articles. I spoke at conferences. But I argued and absolutely continue to do so the relevance of the following concept. That an important question in psychiatry shouldn't be what's wrong with you, but rather what's happened to you. And all the while, I continued to listen to my voices, with whom I'd finally learned to live with peace and respect, and which in turn reflected a growing sense of compassion, acceptance, and respect towards myself. And I remember the most moving and extraordinary moment when supporting another young woman who was terrorized by her voices and becoming fully aware for the very first time that I was no longer in that position myself, but was finally able to support someone else who was. I'm now extremely proud to be part of Intervoice, the organizational body of the International Hearing Voices Movement, an initiative inspired by the work of Professor Marius Rom and Dr. Sandra Escher, which locates voice hearing as a survival strategy, a sane reaction to insane circumstances, not an aberrant symptom of schizophrenia to be endured, but a complex, significant and meaningful experience to be explored. Together, we envisage and enact a society that understands and respects voice hearing, that supports the needs of individuals who hear voices and which values them as full citizens. And this type of society is not only just possible, it's already on its way. Because to paraphrase Cesar Chavez, once social change begins, it cannot be reversed. You cannot humiliate the person who feels pride. You cannot oppress the people who are not afraid anymore. For me, the achievements of the Hearing Voices movement are a reminder that empathy, fellowship, justice, respect are more than words. They are convictions and beliefs, and that beliefs can absolutely change the world. In the last 20 years, the movement has established Hearing Voices networks in 32 countries across five continents, working together to promote dignity, empowerment, and solidarity for individuals in mental distress to create a new language and practice of hope, which, at its very centre, lies an unshakable belief in the power and resilience of the individual. Because as Peter Levine has said, the human animal is a unique being endowed with an instinctual capacity to heal and the intellectual spirit to harness this innate capacity. For friends, for family members, for members of society, for mental health professionals, there is no greater honour or privilege than facilitating that process of healing for someone. To bear witness, to reach out a hand, to share the burden of someone's suffering and to hold the hope for their recovery. 
And likewise, for survivors of distress and adversity, it's extremely important that we remember that we don't have to live our lives forever defined by the damaging things that have happened to us. We are unique, we are irreplaceable, what lies within us can never be truly colonised, contorted or taken away. The light absolutely never goes out. Or as a very wonderful doctor once said to me, don't tell me what other people have told you about yourself. Tell me about you. Thank you. I heard all of that outside. Oh, of the we heard you. I'm we so heard sorry. you. I'm so sorry. I had to cancel an event last night because you know Susie's in the hospital. I had no voice, so it's you know it's, it's a bit of a it's a good job we've got Eleanor and Jane really. Um. I guess one of the things I wanted to um, to understand was um, what what was the help that you got? Because I think working mm. with those voices metaphorically and, and making meaning um, is something that um, psychoanalysis and um, psychoanalytic therapy ha- has done. I was wondering, it sounded as if you did this on your own. I was just wondering what who who helped you to do that? I mean... Initially, it, it was actually quite a, a sort of solitary task um, because back in the day, um, if you had a diagnosis of schizophrenia, then you absolutely were not eligible um, for any kind of psychotherapy. So I couldn't get it on the NHS um, and had to wait until I was well into my 20s before I could afford to pay for it privately. Um, so for many years, I literally had to garner all my resources, you know, body, mind, soul, um, you know, literally the sense of having to, you have to fight for your life. Um, and, you know, this is an outrageous injustice that people who have survived and endured and um, come through horror um, and understandably are, are profoundly affected by that, um, that then rather than being greeted and honoured and respected for the truth of their survival are simply met with a, you know, more often than not an incredibly stigmatising diagnosis um, a very sort of silencing and denying response, um, and that what I would certainly see as coping strategies, as survival strategies, as adaptations, um, as sort of creative, ingenious attempts to um, make sense of what can be an incredibly overwhelming reality, gets reconfigured as just meaningless symptoms of a biomedical disease. Um, <coughs> And that's certainly what has happened to me. I was very, very fortunate that I did meet an incredibly enlightened, um, thoughtful psychiatrist who was aware of the organisation, the Hearing Voices Network, um, and a, an enormous part of my recovery happened in the voluntary sector, really. Um, I was coming together with other survivors, um, hearing other stories <coughs> of people who had come through you know, terrible experiences, but still were filled with hope, with humour, with humanity, who'd made sense of their experiences. Um, and for me, that was the turning point, was being given a leaflet for the Hearing Voices movement and reading this statement that was along the lines of, many people hear voices, so immediately it was trying to destigmatize it and normalise it and emphasise this, this is part of human experience, this is part of, um, you know, a diverse part of being human it's not necessarily just this weird bizarre precarious sign of madness but secondly 
voices can often be made sense of in terms of painful emotions and difficult life events. Um, and that was this, it was like this utter revelation. Um, you know, it was like for years wandering in this just desolation, this wasteland, and somebody reaching out a hand and saying, come with me, I will show you the way out of this. Um, because it, what it reminded me of was that voice right at the beginning that would say she is leaving the room, but would say it in an angry way. So, you know, this very essentially quite neutral voice reflecting my unexpressed emotion. And it was suddenly this recognition is maybe that's what's been happening all along, um, is that this voice does contain, or these voices do contain um, mm. relevant information. Um, so I think it's, um, I'm quoting Jackie Dillon here, who's the current chair of the Hearing Voices Network. I'm sure people are very familiar with Jackie's work when she says um, about the importance of trusting in the process and that once that healing process starts, that we can put an enormous amount of faith and trust in it. And my healing process was quite stunted um, and it was quite delayed and I did, it didn't get the sort of nurturance and support that it needed until quite far down the road. But mm. I think once that process starts and I was able to sort of have faith in it and trust in it, um, then it just, I was moving sort of inexorably towards recovery and for me recovery is very much a, a journey it's not um, a goal or an outcome it's just this constant state of wisdom growth learning um, and I feel it's very much the trajectory that I'm still on so I still learn a lot about the voices that I hear and if anybody's wondering but it's too polite to ask does she still hear voices I absolutely do um, constantly you know every day um, but the difference is now that I absolutely see those voices as part of myself, so they don't terrify me. Um, they feel like my allies. Um, you know, I would miss them if they went. I would be out of a job if they went. I should insure them. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've completely transformed my sense of my own experience, and that was the biggest, probably one of the biggest features of recovery, was, you know, relating to my, learning to relate to myself in this compassionate, kind, forgiving, honouring way, um, to give myself credit for what I'd been through, um, to name what had happened to me, and rather than seeing myself as broken and mentally ill, seeing myself as a survivor, um, somebody who was, uh, who'd been victimised, but who could learn to, to thrive and to be in the world and to recover and to find meaning in the madness. Mm -hmm. And that's it in a nutshell, <laughs> albeit a massive one. <laughs> mm. I was thinking it's, it feels uh, really sad that you um, felt that there was nothing on offer in the NHS. Whereas I was thinking, of course, lots of people have tried to work um, in the NHS with people who are hearing voices. And um, I was thinking... Um, you know, when you, what you said, um, at the beginning about politically, that I was thinking I was part of, uh, the Arbors Association who have, um, tried very much to work within that ethos of, uh, being, you know, actually being very curious, asking. So I was thinking when I worked at the crisis centre, you would realise that somebody was almost listening mm -hmm. to somebody, they're having a conversation with somebody else. And I was thinking about, um, this, the idea of this evening being on, on not being terrified of what you hear. But I was also thinking about having the courage to mm. ask somebody. So what's going on at the moment? What, what are your voices saying? Because this was often what brought people to the crisis center was that the voices were very destructive. Mm. That they, um, and it, they were, um, you know, often promoting that this person harms themselves. So, 
Um, and I think that just having somebody else also model that curiosity, which is what I think the Hearing Voices movement has very much done, is, uh, you know, to, to um, really promote that people have a respectful conversation. But So I was wondering what you think, Jeanette. What do I think? You, what do you think? I'm so sorry. I'm, um, I think I'm dying. Is what I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> separate to all of that. Um, I don't know at quite what point in history, perhaps we can pinpoint this between us, that it, um, having anything that appears to come outside of the self becomes fearful. Um, because there is such a long tradition of people believing that they have heard voices or been inspired by voices, um, usually from a god or a gods. You know, it's all the way through. You, know, you can read the Odyssey. I mean, yeah. it, there's poor old Ulysses. Every five minutes here is appearing. Um, <laughs> and some guys or another and telling him what to do and where to go. Uh, and it's all perfectly normal. Nobody thinks it's strange. And this goes on. This goes on right the way through. You know, the, the great magician John Dee, Queen Elizabeth the first magician, thought that he would be able to learn the tongues of angels, and then he would understand better um, these strange voices, not always in his own language that he heard from the outside. Again, nobody thinks the guy's crazy. He's got all the prophetesses, um, particularly strong um, in 17th century England. Indeed, Anne Lee, who went off from Manchester and founded the Shaker community in Boston uh, was a prophetess. She was a Quaker and then she took it across to the New World and became a Shaker. Uh, and she was well known for hearing the voices. It was, a, you know, it was a voice that said to her, get the money together and get on a boat and, and go and found a, a religious community somewhere else. Um, th- th- so this was all seen as really quite valid uh, rather than something that was necessarily a problem. Um, but at the same time, yes, we've got we've got the situation where the voice says that person at the back there is evil and you should kill them when they leave the room or go and run them over tomorrow morning, all of that. Um, and we concentrate endlessly on, on the destructive side of it, but we don't often think anymore with any, I suppose, any ease or any confidence that we might hear things uh, outside the self as, as clear voices that are telling us something which is also benign and not necessarily destructive. Um, but I, so I'm not sure whether that's what, what I mean. I'm, you know, you, I get you're all much more interested. Just because I'm married to a shrink <laughs> doesn't mean that I am one. So for me, you know, that, that for me, the history of voice is actually quite a noble one, rather than one that's endlessly about things which are wrong or bad or difficult. Um, and that, and that as a writer, you cannot be a writer unless you're prepared to have multiple voices speaking to you all of the time. I mean, that's what you deal with. You deal, you, you know, that's what, you, if you create a character, you invite them to supper. And then the best way to, to know a character is to have them uh, sitting at your table and have a conversation, which is actually a dialogue. It's not a monologue. And very soon in the creative process, that character will start speaking back. Um, and that's why characters are authentic. If everything sounds the same, uh, it's, it, it never works. We know that in a story on stage. You know, the characters are different because their voices are different. And that's very obvious when you go to the theatre. Uh, and, but if you're writing that, you hear it anyway, and you do hear it outside. There is no question of this. It's not simply some internal construction. Um, I talk out loud to, to the people I'm, I'm, I'm inventing until such a point at which they're invented and they talk to me out loud. This is why I live in the country, so I don't get sent to the nut house. <laughs> what do we think about this? Hmm. Well, I was wondering if... Um, when you, uh, I guess what I was thinking about it came into mind when you were talking was Joan of Arc hearing mm, voices, yeah. and whether part of uh, 
what would have happened around the turn of the century with proper, uh, well, with Freud, with Darwin, with everything changing. Also was feminism, was Marxism, was that the world was beginning to help people find their own voice. And therefore it it does become very Mm. threatening to the self and others when the voice says something that frightens the person who's hearing it. You see, I was wondering if one of the things that is very hard for any clinician, whether in the NHS, nurse, doctor, whatever, psychiatric, social work, is this kind of duty of care that they have to keep somebody safe. So that as soon as somebody says that they are hearing voices, and that that there is something about, um, which I think is your point really about, is how to respect that that person still has sanity when actually what has been diagnosed is that this is a sign of insanity and it means that an intervention has to be made. Is a voice, is hearing a voice always a sign? I mean, is it in your clinical practices? Is that what happens if somebody says, hey, I'm hearing voices? Is that immediately, quick, go and get the syringe? Kind <laughs> 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 <I> of. <love. laughs> No, of course. I've never been invited back. No, but I think it does get people's attention. Let's put it that way. I think what you, your experience at the GPs is this is, you know, I was thinking about the DSM. This is um, a very important diagnostic feature. So, of course, it, right. is, it, it is there as a sign of, okay, that this person is is unwell. That's really what you're saying, not that... People say, go and get the syringe. But <laughs> the next question, hopefully, would be, and what are the voices telling you? Yeah. That's another diagnosis. So if the voices are saying, as voice, people have reported all kinds of things, they might say, she's looking at me funny. Mm. They're talking about me, or that she's going to, or she looks frightened, or she, you know, that there is something that's, but, yeah. but I think if it's saying, you know, go and buy a gun, and mm. you have, then people feel they need to make more of an intervention, don't they? Mm. But I think it's this business on of what trying to decode really what what that it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody's becoming psychotic, but it can. That's the controversial thing. Of course, it can be. Mm. I mean, certainly, um, very, very, very closely entwined with the diagnosis of schizophrenia. Although you mentioned the DSM, and it's interesting that. For over 50 years, um, hearing voices commenting or conversing in the third person. So these were called Schneiderian voices after Kurt Schneider, who was the psychiatrist who classified them as such in the 1950s. And that's how I got diagnosed with schizophrenia. I think it's probably how many people have been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, Interestingly, in DSM-5, DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, so it's like the psychiatry's mothership, basically. Um, and the fifth edition was published in 2013. And the Schneiderian voices have gone from schizophrenia. It just merely now says hallucinations. Yeah. So their diagnostic relevance has been seriously de-emphasized, um, which is, in some ways is, a, is definitely moving forward um, because it's, uh, you know, in this statistical categorical approach, what they're sort of recognizing is that these type of voices have no reliability or validity for schizophrenia, although people like me who would argue that schizophrenia is an utterly meaningless construct would say that actually doesn't really mean very much anyway. Um, but it's recognition these type of voices are very closely linked with trauma, um, with a, a psychological process called dissociation, um, which is very strongly linked with trauma. 
Um, and I think voice hearing has almost fallen foul in some ways um, of these kind of sort of like meta narratives really which is this attempt to sort of like colonize and reify human experience um, so hence the the emphasis in modern psychiatry not always um, I'm not a clinician I haven't worked in the NHS for many years and absolutely recognize there's some amazing practice that happens um, but a, a common a far too common response um, is that the only interest in the voices is exactly as Jane sort of was, was saying is, is as a diagnostic criteria and beyond that People don't really want to know what the voices are saying. How old are the voices? Do they remind you of anyone? Are they male? Are they female? Have they always been the way they are now, or did they change? What happened to make them change? What was happening in your life when each voice appeared for the first time? You know, trying to get to know the voices um, and trying to really sort of engage with the voices and engage with the emotions and the experiences and the meaning-making that lies behind the voices. Um, and I think, unfortunately, in, in the NHS... Um, and again, without sort of wanting to, to totally trash the NHS, because I think the NHS does some wonderful stuff, people, mental health workers are very often utterly terrified of strong emotion. Um, they want to silence it, medicate it away, um, hospitalise people, subdue it, deny it. Um, and yet for so many of us, learning to express, tolerate, bear really overwhelming emotions is Do you a mean really anger, anger fear? fear, hatred, uh, guilt, shame. It can be a really crucial part of the healing process. And I think this is sort of like a societal thing as well, is that emotions like anger, jealousy, um, fear can get sort of quite stigmatized almost, like these are bad emotions. Um, but as a, a therapist I know sort of once described it, um, all emotions, he used the analogy of a river, that all emotions are pure at the source. And maybe further downstream, things get tipped into the river and it becomes sort of polluted or muddied or corrupted. Um, but the emotion itself is pure and is coming from a pure place and should be respected and explored and acknowledged. Um, and because of our risk culture, because of this real emphasis of, you know, thinking back from the inquiry, um, that practice can far too often be very conservative and oppressive. And of course, we have a duty of care. We need to keep people safe. We need to keep the public safe, although, again, you know, um, attacks by people with mental health problems are statistically very low, but it does happen. Um, safety is paramount, but we need to actively find ways to help people feel safe um, rather than just giving them some medication. Um, we, you know, we need to really engage with their world and bear witness to the experiences of loss, adversity, stress, oppression, abuse that has shaped this person's reality. Um, and medication can be part of an intervention, but really I'd be saying we need a holistic intervention that considers every part of this person's life and that really seeks to, you know, heal their social, their emotional, their psychological wounds in really healing and restorative ways. Can I ask a question to the audience? How many people here have heard or do hear voices? Hmm. Quite a few. Yeah. I mean, when I had a breakdown, I mean, Susie later said to me that what I did was so, in itself, so dangerous that <coughs> she's not at all, she wouldn't recommend it to anybody, it, which was um, 
there were lots of voices coming in. They were rather negative and destructive. Uh, it tended to be this this, this horrible, you know, neglected child who appeared. Um, I mean, she was quite entertaining because she was funny, but you know, she did say terrible things. You know, she'd say she'd say things like, you know, why do you wear nylon knickers? I mean, I don't wear nylon knickers, but anyway, <laughs> that's what she did. She, she'd come up and she'd say, you know, I, I'm not surprised. You know, there would be stuff about love. There'd be stuff. There'd, endlessly, she'd come in. She was a kind of cross between my mother, Mrs. Winterson, and Caliban in The Tempest, um, this child. And she, she lived at, I don't know where she lived, actually, somewhere horrible down in the, the dump of life. Um, and she would appear... Uh, and I decided I'd do some therapy for a bit, which was a huge mistake because it was an a- absolute failure. Um, and it was, I just be- became obsessed by this therapist's feet because I'd be looking down like this. <laughs> and this therapist, who you'll be pleased to know, is a young girl. Always, always wore socks and sandals, which really made me depressed. <laughs> Separate to being mentally ill, it made me depressed. So I look at these feet with the, the with the socks and sandals, and I think you know there's two reasons why I should not be in this room. <laughs> and I, I I just like I wouldn't I never told him I, never, I wouldn't ever told him anything. I mean, she so said, "Did you tell him you tried to kill yourself?" And I said, "That's very personal." <laughs> so you can see that the therapy didn't wasn't you know maybe I didn't enter in the right spirit. I don't know. But you know I'm British. But you know you don't talk about these things, do you? That's not why I went. <laughs> um, and then afterwards, I used to be so depressed, I'd go, and go to Blackwell's in Oxford and go into the Norrington room, which is the room where all the, the psychology and psychoanalysis and stuff is. And I, look for, I did find things, actually. I found Neville Simington, um, Spirit of Sanity, and I started reading him, and that really began to get me strangely back on the right road. But these voices from the kid were... I'd say to her, I, I'd say to her, why aren't you coming to therapy? And she'd say, I'm not coming, it's a wank. And I, and I say, get in the car. And she'd say, no. I said, get in the car. No, I'm not coming. And we'd be out on my drive in the Cotswolds having this fight, me and this invisible person, but, uh, you know, really going at it um, because it was real. Um, and I'd say, you know, nobody ever taught you to eat with a knife and fork, did they? And then she'd, she'd pull her tongue out and pull her face at me, and I'd get in the car and go. So this was I went to therapy, and she didn't. So that's why it was a failure. Yes. Mm. So the, yeah, she mm. she just wouldn't come. So the way we, and then you know one day when I was going for a walk, she was trailing after me, shouting out her usual bizarre sentences, um, and I turned round because you know she's physical to me as well, as well. She's gone now, uh, and I said to her, "We'll learn how to love," and she came next to me, and took my hand, and we we went on the walk together, and after that. I found that if I said to her, look, we can talk between two and four every day, but I can't have you banging into my studio when I'm trying to work and just, you know, upsetting me and causing trouble and not coming to therapy and blah, blah, then it was fine. She would turn up at two o'clock and we'd talk between two and four and then she'd go away again. Um, and gradually, the whole thing, it, she integrated or she, she, that part of me that she represented integrated back into me. Um, but Susie thought that this was really not this kind of thing you should do on your own when you live in the, in the middle of nowhere with no streetlights or neighbours. But it worked. 
But, what, but you're talking about her as though she's an altar, if you she know. Was, she was. Rather than a yeah. voice. No, you she know. was a voice. She was a voice. I mean, I had a picture of her, because I don't know about you, but gee, I don't know if you visual... I've, she was very visual as well mm. as a voice. Mm. I certainly knew she wasn't, a, you know, she was unmistakable. But would you say she was you, Jeanette? Did she look like you as a child? Partly. <laughs> Partly. Mm. Yeah, but she'd come with, you know, various bits. Bits of, you know, break off. from. T- I mean, it was like having your own horror movie knocking around. You know, she'd be smashed in some days and, and, uh, and other days. You know, her hair would change colour. Um, so you would never quite know, but the voice was unmistakable. So, yeah, and I, I thought this is what people mean when they talk about either demon possession or poltergeist, you know, whether yeah, it's, haunted, it's, yeah. it, it seems to have an entity around it as well. And I, you know, but partly, I think, having been brought up extremely religiously by, you know, Pentecostal mad people, then that, who, you know, believe in speaking in tongues anyway, you know, they have a whole history of all that. that was a, I think that was protected because, first of mm. all, I wasn't scared of it. <laughs> and I thought, this happens, I, th- I thought, okay, so you know, if you're brought up in a land of kind of where, where you think that there are entities out there, some satanic, some not, and that you, you hear voices and it's normal for your congregation to hear voices or think they do, then perhaps that does give you some kind of psychic protection. You know, because even now in the Catholic Church, there's still a great tradition of people being allowed to hear voices without being carted off. So maybe the religion was offering some, some sort of uh, protective shield which is no longer there for most people in a very mm. secular world. And I think not being scared of it was a big part mm. of it not engulfing me, which Susie said was, would have been the, the problem, mm. that you can get so uh, this, this thing actually wins rather than is integrated. Mm. You see, what I think is the hallmark um, of what both your, of you are saying, and yet obviously not in the period of time when you were tormented mm. and driven to distraction was the fact that you became curious about these voices and began to have a conversation. Now, I was thinking about what you said about trauma, about the link between trauma or severe neglect, which could also be classified as trauma, is that what happened to the child was that there was no one to listen or that the the story was not being told or... um, so that's one of the things I think is quite important metaphorically to work with, is mm. that finally there's someone to tell, mm. and can you bear to listen? But I also wanted to come back to the fact that both of you are really bright, educated, and articulate, so that there is something else that I think is part of this, which is that... I was thinking when most people present to a therapist or a doctor, mm. what they want if they're in extreme distress, is for you to take away those feelings. Mm. Mm. Okay, they're not coming because they want you to accept them and be Mm. cured. I mean, of course they are on one level. But I was thinking, if it's a GP, when you say that the um, NHS or the medical model is frightened, I was thinking most people now are frightened of their feelings. Mm. Mm. To You know, that there is something... I was thinking the number of times somebody might come to me and say, well, if I could just get rid of this anxiety, it would be true. And I am very aware, I've got all these other feelings that we're going to ask you to feel. You know, it's not just that we're just going to take things away, we're going to make you have more. Mm. And and that isn't (laughs) the deal that most people want to hear when they come to therapy. Should we ask these lot what they think? (laughs) 
Yes. Okay, you were just going to say something. Just yeah. what were you gonna... um, I was just very quickly going to say, um, I think, you know, people d- don't want to a lot of the time. I certainly mm-hmm. didn't. Um, and was absolutely desperate, you know, was so desperate for it to go. I considered drilling a hole yeah. in my head to get the voices out. Um, but I think sort of coming, you know, being supported to sort of realise that this was something I could learn to take control of. Um, and I guess the thing is, a lot of the time it's like tiny, tiny little steps. Um, so like the, the example Jeanette gave of sort of putting like, um, you know, putting two hours a day. Yes. That, that was something I did as well and found it incredibly helpful. Um, it wasn't like sort of like wading straight in to sort of like make sense of this weird subconscious world, um, but just making very, very small alterations that got increasingly... I mean, um, a, a phrase I, I really liked at the time and still use a lot in public speaking is the, the slogan of Amnesty International, it's better to light even a little candle than to curse the darkness. And sometimes that process of like reclaiming your life, it is just lighting little candles. You know, the light, the illumination isn't going to happen overnight. Um, but we can move in sort of small, progressive steps at the person's pace. Um, I think that's sort of really, really important. Because um, again, quoting the, the current chair of the Hearing Voices Network says, you know, like living, uh, intervoice. You know, living with negative voice, it's like being stuck in a really destructive marriage where divorce isn't an option. And I think just trying to get rid of it is can be a rut sometimes that a lot of mental health workers and sometimes voice hearers themselves can get really stuck in. Mm. And in the short term, maybe getting it to all go away isn't going to happen. But what we can do is learn to change the way we respond to it and find ways to make that experience more safe. And to find out it's not just coping with the voices themselves for a lot of us, not everyone, but many of us, it's also how to cope with the underlying emotions that the voices are embodying. Um, you know, because as Marius Rom says, voices are messengers for so many people, and they communicate compelling information about genuine problems in our lives, and for that reason it doesn't make sense to just shoot the messenger and deny the content of the message. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let me open it now to the floor. Is there a microphone? Yeah. Thank you very much for those really wonderful comments, which will do a huge amount as they get percolated around. Um, I was struck with that last sentence just said about not shooting the messenger, because we, we use that nearly all the time for where it's someone whistleblowing over abuse. And we know that abuse and trauma are at the root of anybody having a creative defense to survive with, that whatever, all, all, everything diagnosable practically comes from trauma somewhere. So what do you, you two feel, well, three, Jane as well, over our still finding it unbearable to consider how impinged on and traumatized as a species we are, that the, the, that the words about trauma have got to be silenced in this way and put in a spectrum, uh, beyond what is supposed to be normal. Mm. And this goes, of course, with the discrediting of anybody working with dissociative disorders, 
anybody talking to the different outers and inquiring of their life and their hopes is being told they are colluding with a delusion. Um, and it's this damaging approach of not being curious, as Jane said, but the ubiquity of trauma and our continuing incapacity to cope with it. Um, I'm really excited because that's Valerie Sinison, and I like, really admire her work. Um, I think, um, I mean, my, my answer to that is on, kind of on a, on a few levels. Um, I mean, I think anyone, you know, like yourself, Valerie, who's been sort of courageous enough to stand by the side of the victim um, faces the wrath of the perpetrator. And that might be the literal perpetrator or it might be the sort of the way that society embodies the sort of perpetrator mindset in that we just don't want to hear it. Um, you know, we're in the Freud Museum. Freud, of course, um, you know, very, very early on wrote to Wilhelm Fleiss, Fleiss, whatever, uh, sort of saying, uh, you know, a new motto. What have they done to you, poor child? And he recognized the devastating impact of sexual abuse very early on in his career, but he lived in a society that was not ready to hear it. Um, and he buried it. And, you know, obviously the whole story of Jeffrey Masson and Phyllis Chrysler, was it? Um, you know, coming along into the archives in the 70s and, like, unearthing all this. It's, you know, it's a very ancient problem um, that people don't want to hear it. Um, I think it's... it's My three main reasons for this, I think it's financial, um, because reconstructing distress as a biomedical disease that can be treated with pharmaceuticals is enormously profitable. Um, psychiatric drugs are worth billions and billions and billions of dollars a year in the United States alone. Um, it's poli uh, politically convenient because it's much easier to say that that group of people are flawed um, and they're irresponsible, feckless therapists are colluding with them than it is to say we live in a society that tolerates mass injustice um, tolerates violence against women and children, um, tolerates income inequality, that we live in a really crazy world. Um, again, politicians don't necessarily really want to acknowledge that. Um, and thirdly, I think there is a, a level of, of professional self-interest. Um, I don't want to demonise a particular profession. Um, I think as many as sort of culpable, including my own background, which is psychology, um, is that this is our self-defined subject matter. Um, and if we sort of say this is a medical problem, this is like, let's all bring our science beards and stroke them and call ourselves like behavioral scientists, um, you know, that this justifies our, our role rather than just seeing these. This is, this is human experience. This isn't something that, you know, you asked me earlier, Jane, what helped me? Like, my mum helped me. Um, somebody with no medical or psychological training at all. Um, and when I had expert therapy in my 20s, it was life-changing. It was incredibly useful. Um, and I still have it today. I still see a therapist. Um, but I think when we say that you need um, that only people <coughs> with expert qualifications can support a distressed individual, we de-skill the whole community. Um, so I think there's many sort of dark forces out there that are striving for silence, for denial... Um, to side with the perpetrator, to look the other way, to see, hear, speak no evil. Um, but there's a lot of courageous people who are in this room right now who are fighting back against that. And again, it's like, I think, the little candle um, analogy that we have to keep lighting these little candles, we have to keep spreading the word. Um, and it's the old adage, first they uh, ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And I think... 
the revolution is coming. I think, there, you know, there's, it's it's getting better. There's a long way to go, but you know, good people fighting side by side to try and make a difference. I think that difference will ultimately happen. Hmm. Well, Valerie, I think feelings are very hard work. <laughs> <laughs> And we, we do our best to pretend we're not having them most of the time, you know, all of us in all of our lives. Um, and and you know, although I'm sceptical about neuroscience in many ways, I think, you know, th- what we now know that in, in, a, in the economy of the body, that the limbic system will always take precedence over the neural highway and that you can't have a thought without a feeling mm. um, and that therefore you might as well uh, bring those feelings in and that they're, so they're as foreign to many of us, just the ordinary feelings of every day, as, you know, as, as my angry, aggressive, dirty little kid living in the bog. It's still about knowing who you are and, and how you feel at any particular moment and not always trying to suppress that. And women are particularly guilty, and I mean that, I do mean that word, of suppressing our feelings instead of being allowed to feel them. You know, somehow we don't feel that we can feel our feelings. We're supposed to be the more feeling sex, whatever that means. But we're always trying to suppress those things to make other people feel better, which just makes us feel worse. And actually, therefore, everybody ends up feeling worse. Um, so I think it's a daily, for me, it's about it's just a, try a daily consciousness, really, to let the whole self be the whole self um, and to honour your mind and your thinking capacity but also to recognise that the, fe- the feeling tone is really important. You know, when Gandhi was asked what's the most important advice you can give to anybody, he said, be kind. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I don't know if I have anything more <clears throat> to add to that, but I, uh, apart from, I can see a correlation depressingly now, uh, I guess, living, but about what happens when I don't know, it's some shocking statistic about how many people in the medical profession have been to state school. It's shockingly low. Mm. It's shockingly high how many people have been to boarding school, how many politicians in the ruling club have been to boarding, where they have learned to repress, Mm. suppress their feelings. So that one of the things that I think I noticed as a parent was watching a group of young boys, about seven years old, playing football. And this seven-year-old got upended so brutally, up in the air, landed flat on his back, knocked the wind out of him so that everybody watched. And then the coach ran on, stood him on his feet, and, of course, the child wanted to cry, and he grabbed him by the torso and he said, hold it in. Hold it in. And I thought, no, let this child cry. He's injured. And I thought, oh, that's the difference. Because on the other pitch, girls were playing football. And if any girl got injured there, the coach would run on and scoop the girl up in her arms and carry her off the pitch. And I thought, these messages that we give children all the time about who's allowed to Mm. feel what, who's allowed to express what. So girls are allowed to express pain at being injured Mm, but they're not allowed to express anger Mm -hmm. you know so they whereas the boys would just go back on the pitch and the next time kick the other boy (laughs) and get on with it whereas the girls all went over and said I didn't mean to hurt you (laughs) it's totally fascinating to watch this different way about what feelings people are allowed to have and I think there are there are unbearable feelings going back to your point that people are having Mm. to try 
and manage. Mm. And they become unmanageable and they come out in very distressed ways. So, Do we know if um, children's imaginary friends operate in the same way and hear the same things? Is there any research been done into I don't know the answer to that. Um, I'm certainly not an expert on that research, but I know it absolutely does exist. Um, and that the, the, actually the research I'm aware of, because it's sort of my field of, of interest, um, is children who hear voices that they identify as imaginary friends and that those voices can stick around. Um, and it's when the child, the child becomes an adolescent and becomes an adult and then becomes much more aware of this sort of like societal discourse that voice hearing is not normal um, and that only mad people hear voices and that this is not an experience, this is a symptom, then the way that they respond to that experience begins to change and correspondingly the voices can then sometimes become much more negative. Um, not dissimilar to the process I described with myself that when, you know, when we're told... You know, it's almost it, when we're told it's a problem, it becomes a problem. Um, so I think it's it's definitely sort of on that sort of same continuum. And I mentioned before about the idea of the, this process dissociation, um, that there's some very lots and lots of research in coming out now um, saying that voice hearing as an experience is a dissociative one, um, which is basically trying to pull it away from the clutches of like psychosis and schizophrenia. It's saying it's a meaningful psychological experience. Um, and children are naturally much higher levels of dissociation than adults. Um, and so it's therefore really not surprising um, that experiences like voice hearing, that very strong imaginative involvement, that absorption are just higher in children. Um, and it's a great shame when that starts being pathologised um, rather than just seen as part of diversity and difference. Um, the Hearing Voices movement has sort of like now done a, spe- a particular book aimed at parents and carers of young children who hear voices to try and emphasise about getting away from the fear of the experience and emphasising this is common Lots of children hear them, and if the voices mm. are scary or undermining, then it's important to try and understand why, mm. what's happened to make the voice manifest in that way. And that's, I think, is very similar to adults as well. If the voice is very aggressive and very malevolent um, and very critical, then it's trying to understand why is the voice like that. Because certainly in my personal and professional experience, there will always be a reason. Mm. Do you know, I, want, I wanted to just... To clarify something for myself, which is, um, you know, when you give yourself a good talking to, or there's a part of you that generally always does need a good talking to in certain situations. You know, like in Harry Potter, there's Moaning Myrtle in the U bend. Yeah. Um, miserable spirit just complains about everything. Um, when I travel, which I have to do a great deal, there's a part of me which absolutely is Moaning Myrtle in the U bend. Um, and but I have to say to myself, look, this this this, this bit of you, Jeanette, isn't isn't coming out today. Right, um, she's just staying. There's no problem. The other bits of Jeanette will cope. You don't have to worry about this trauma at the airport. We're going there. <laughs> uh, I think. I think something about you know, if you're adopted, it may be that when you know you, journeys begin by being traumatic because the first one you make, you never see your mother again, um, and there may be some issues in inside there that it, no matter what happens in later life, no matter how many air miles you've got. Um, 
it's still some, something in there. So I always do that. I give myself a good talking to before I set off on my endless travels to put that person both at ease, but also mm. if, if, she de- if she decides to pop up. But you could say, well, look, this is split off. You know, this is, this is a version of you not being integrated. But also it seems to me quite a useful way of dealing with things which otherwise um, are both unhelpful and, and, and awkward. You know, you just want to mm. sail through and get on with your life, don't you? Mm. So is that crazy or is it sane? No, I think it's. I think that's. Tell me. I think that's fairly mainstream okay. now because Good. actually in coaching, yeah. which is, I was thinking that people who are nervous about public speaking, they often get them to do a visualization, which is that look, it's the child in you. The child has been humiliated by grown ups who's frightened about. And they do this thing when they say, right, you get behind me because you don't, I've got this. You know, you don't, you don't have to do this scary thing, talk to the board or talk, cause I'm doing it. You mean I could make a fortune out of this? You could! <laughs> I've just been doing it all my own at Heathrow for all these years. <laughs> I, mean, I totally agree with, with all of that. And, um, I think it's, you know, it's this big myth that personality is this like unitary, monolithic entity. Yeah. It's a very Western idea. Um, I think all of us have multiple personalities. Everyone in this room has different aspects of themselves, um, and that's exciting and creative, and it's part of being human. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's almost a case of, like, I mean, I'm simplifying it, but for some of us who, for whatever the reason is, you know, some kind of extreme exposure, you know, however you want it, you know, trauma, adversity, <laughs> that those separations between those different aspects of self that we all have can become a little bit more disparate, a little bit more disowned, a little bit more immediately recognisable as part of ourselves. Um, but it's the same process. It's all just on a continuum. It's not like, you know, mad, sane, us, them, normal, abnormal. It's just like extraordinary circumstances may create an extraordinary reaction, you know, the way that, that Valerie was describing. But it's not inherently abnormal. Um, and again, that process of speaking to those aspects of ourselves, I think is really important because, like, years ago... I wouldn't sort of have a feeling of like, oh, I'm not good enough. I would hear a voice saying, you're not good enough. And I would shout at that voice. Um, and it was many years later that I realized that that's what always happened to me. I would feel I'm not good enough, I would, you know, and then somebody would shout at me. And then I'm, create, I'm carrying that on yeah. by shouting at that part of myself. Um, so instead, when I heard the voice saying, you're not good enough, then I'd try and like comfort the voice and myself. And saying, well, I know people told you that in the past, but they were lying, they were wrong. You're good enough as you are and you always have been. And that's saying that to myself and to the voice. Um, and I think there's the sort of notion of kind of integration is a really interesting one because for me, um, some of my voices have gone naturally. I don't hear all the ones that I originally did, but there's, there's still quite a few. Um, did you I, get any new ones? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and it changed and over the years. And I don't actually want to sort of get rid of them because to me something almost like integration is kind of like annihilation because if they just sort of submerge together, then where do they all go? Um, and that's just for me. I'm not obviously saying that's the right course for everyone, but my sort of personal preference is to keep these voices um, and, again, that carry all these fragments of me Um but, you know, that just feel very, very meaningful and very important. Um, and again, as I said before, I, I would genuinely miss them if I went, if they went. Um, again, and that's somebody who was, you know, driven to utter desperation to get rid of them. So it's what I would really love to see is just, you know, a, 
a response, a standard response that every person hearing voices who comes through, you know, any kind of clinical setting is given the support and opportunity, if they want to, to make that kind of discovery and transition and transformation and to get the support to understand themselves and their experience, um, whatever that experience is and whatever the person feels is right for them. Mm. Yes. So I feel perhaps I'm almost coming out here. I'm actually a medic um, by training. Um, I was also a young carer for nine years of my life. I went to a state school. I do not have a beard. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. Um, And I I sort of feel like that it's quite difficult to hear that the perception of medicine is stigmatised in a way that the other way around, that actually it is not just risk management and holistic care, which is exactly what I believe very strongly in myself, part of being here is that belief, but that that's not always what's perceived on the other side. Mm. I find that quite hard to hear. Um, And I think also I want to sort of present the other side of the story, that doctors are managing massive lists of patients with very limited time, very limited Mm. resources, and personal stress. Doctors have amongst the highest suicide rates of any group in the country. And these are, you know, as, as you said yourselves, you know, educated people who work bloody hard. So I, I sort of feel that I want to sit in the middle of the table a little bit mm. and, and push it a little bit more across and say, well, I'm sorry that some of your experiences have been difficult and haven't been supportive as they should have been, but that actually as you did say, things are changing. Mm. And I don't want it to just be presented as something like the medical profession drugs and locks up and limits, because I don't believe that's what happens. It's not my experience of it. The doctors are people. I mean, you know, you're all human. So some of you are going to be good doctors, some of you are going to be rubbish. Because it's the same in every profession, isn't it, in every walk of life. And some, some doctors will have a natural empathy. Um, and some doctors really won't, you know, will be thinking, I've got seven minutes or 11 minutes and I can't do this. And no, uh, there's, there's no blame attached to that. I mean, I, I didn't go and see a doctor because I knew they'd just put me out. They'd just give me some Prozac or something. And I thought, what is the po- what is the point, I thought, of going to sit there for 11, mil- 11 minutes, be humiliated by somebody who's overworked and will just write me a prescription? Um, that that's not a criticism of doctors. It's a, it, it it is it is a reading of the situation, mm-hmm. um, and that's different. You know, I think everybody here feels the utmost mm-hmm. respect towards doctors and the medical profession, but we know that the way it's managed just doesn't just doesn't work for the people who want to help. So we're with you. We're with you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's I wish there was more that could be done, mm. but often it is as simple as risk management. I mean, I think what, what I would say, and um, I you know, sort of referred to earlier, that it's absolutely not my intention to demonise one profession, so I'm not sort of like demonising psychiatrists, but I do demonise the psychiatric system. Um, and, you know, I know some, I, you know, sort of certainly when I did, told my story, I mentioned a wonderful psychiatrist who was life-changing, the founder of the Hearing Voices Movement is a psychiatrist. The current chair of the Hearing Voices Movement is a psychiatrist. Um, so it's very good people in a very bad system. Um, and I think, you know, as, as somebody who has worked in mental health, we do need to ask ourselves why is this level of discontent, dissatisfaction, protest unique to mental health of all other sh- branches of medicine? 
you know, I'm sure people have heard of like the anti-psychiatry movement or the critical psychiatry movement. There is no equivalent in any other branch. Um, there is a sort of like unique dissatisfaction about the mental health system, and I think it's lazy to just blame psychiatrists. It's it's not just psychiatrists. Psychiatrists have unique pressures and responsibilities that other members of the team don't have. It's those forces that I described earlier. Um, you know, the political forces, the social forces, you know, that doesn't want to hear this kind of stuff, that doesn't want to give proper budgets to the mental health system so that this kind of care can be provided. Um, but I think you sort of do have to be aware that, um, you know, transposing um, a sort of medical model that works by and large very, very well in somatic medicine doesn't apply in the same way to thoughts, feelings, emotions, behaviours. Um, and it's up to all of us to, you know, support the psychiatric colleagues um, to, you know, be able to practice in a more holistic way, whether doctor, nurse, psychologist, social worker. People don't go into mental health for the fantastic wages and glamorous lifestyle. They go in because they want to help people. Um, you know, it's good people who want to make a difference and they're not in a system that allows them to do that. So my absolute take on it has always been um, it's very, very good people in a very, very limited system. So it's trying to sort of get creative, get political, get protesting um, and finding ways around that. OK, there's one more question at the back. It'll be the last question. <coughs> Uh, I wanted to respond, Eleanor, you said in your talk that safety is paramount and that really worried me because even though I absolutely agree that safety is really important, um, my sort of therapy hero is Carl Rogers who mm. says life is a risky business mm. and my worry is that because of this obsession with safety and risk mm. and the huge amounts of medication that are given to a quarter of the population, mm. most of which reduce people's essence of life, their libido, whatever you want to call it, that is a dangerous situation because what you end up with is a large portion of the population, including especially the users of those services, who literally do not have the energy to do anything about the system. So you have a system which is inherently flawed and toxic you don't have enough people to do anything about it. No, thank you. Um, I mean, I hope certainly that I've made clear in what I've said so far that I absolutely share your critiques and reservations about a sort of pharmacologically driven um, reductionist model of mental health care without a doubt. Um, but I do think safety is important. And when I say safety, I don't just mean statutory safety. Um, I certainly don't mean sort of sectioning in hospitals. I mean sort of finding, um, and again, I'm glad you've raised that because it gives me an opportunity to clarify what was obviously quite clumsily expressed, is the importance of helping people find a personal sense of safety, safety in the body, in the mind, in the immediate environment. How can we ground ourselves and calm ourselves when feeling terrorised and overwhelmed? How can we feel safe enough to refuse the commands of the voices? Um, I think uh, sort of... For me, there's a difference between safeness and safety. Um, so safety, this is a dreadful analogy, and even as I'm introducing <laughs> it, I'm kind of progressing yeah. it, but um, I might like safety is being in a nuclear bunker. Nobody's going to hurt you, nobody's going to get in, but your quality of life's enormously restricted. Safeness is feeling contentment, joy, freedom, 
Um, and safeness, I think, is absolutely paramount. Um, safety, unfortunately, is sometimes necessary. Wish that it wasn't, but it, I think it is. Um, but what we can do is we provide safeness early enough, that kind of coercive, repressive safety forced on the person becomes much less necessary. Um, and it's finding people ways to feel personally safe and, again, to find that sense of freedom. Um, and I think that is very, very important because certainly for many of us who are incredibly overwhelmed, terrorised, demoralised, um, we need to feel safe before we can start therapy. Um, there needs to be a sort of foundation um, of safety, stability, self-command, self-regulation um, in, in the body, the mind, the spirit before you can really start to go there. So I think that's the kind of safeness that I meant. So thank you for, for letting me kind of clarify that. Okay, well, thank you. I'd like to thank you, Eleanor. <laughs> Fantastically inspiring um, evening. And to you, Jeanette, similarly. Never one to disappoint. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Jeanette.